Now I begin reading in chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. Now don't miss this next verse, verse 2 of Genesis 13. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Now, again, I repeat, he was the John D. Rockefeller of that day. And he was a very wealthy man at this time. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel. Now, that means he went way north of Jerusalem, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai. Now, you see, he had come to the south around Hebron, now he goes north of Jerusalem to Bethel, and it's unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. This man is a man, you see, that though he may stumble and fall, he comes back to God. How wonderful it is to have a God we can come back to. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And Lot did pretty well also, you see, down in the land of Egypt. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwell in the land. May I say, the Word of God's a marvelous Word, if you just only let it speak to you. And will you notice this? Abram actually got two things in the land of Egypt that caused him untold grief. One was riches. The second was a little Egyptian maid by the name of Hagar. We'll see that later. But here he got riches, and it causes him and Lot now to have to separate. There's strife between them. And then did you notice this statement, the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwell in the land? The very interesting thing is, Abram's herdmen and Lot's herdsmen are fighting, and here come Abram and Lot, and they disagree. And then the Canaanite whispers over to the Perizzite and says, Look at them. <laughs> fighting again. They came into this land, built an altar to the living and true God. My, how we looked up to Abram. And we thought when he first came here, he was such a wonderful man. And we knew he was honest. We knew he was truthful. But look at him now. Look at the strife they're having. And I don't think the Perizzite and the Canaanite were very well impressed by Abram and Lot at this time. Let me say this to you. may step on somebody's toes. I don't know your town. I don't know where you live. But in your town, if you're like other towns in the town I came from, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians, they just didn't get along. And they were fighting. And sometimes in the church today, there is these internal fights. And the unsaved man on the outside, he knows about it. May I say to you, he says, if that's Christianity, I don't want any of it. I can get a fight outside. I don't need to join the church to get a fight. The Lord Jesus says to the church today, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you are fundamental and you organize a church. Oh, no. He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. The parasite and the Canaanite, those old rascals, they know when you're fighting on the inside, friends. That's the reason I had an uncle that never came to the Lord. My aunt used to weep and say, oh, he won't listen. Well, you know why? Well, with her lived a sister, another aunt. I used to go there sometimes Sunday for dinner. You know what we had for dinner? Roast preacher. One of my aunts went to the Methodist church. The other went to the Presbyterian church. 
And oh boy, did they try to outdo each other, talking about the preacher and the fights that were going on. I used to watch my uncle. He'd just sit there and eat. When he'd get up, he'd leave, go down to his club on Sunday afternoon. He'd come home that evening. He wasn't drunk, but he sure had several drinks. May I say to you, they never won him. <laughs> A lot of people not being won today, my friend, because of the strife that's inside the church. This is an interesting thing right here. The Canaanite and the parasite, they dwell in the land, and they still dwell in the land. They're right near your church, by the way. Now, will you notice, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife. Now, it's Abram, by the way, that makes the division. Abram's a great man. Listen to him. I pray thee between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And it took a big man to tell him that. In other words, Lot could choose what he wanted, and Abraham would take what was left. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest under Zoar. Now, that was a beautiful spot in those days. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. That's interesting. All his days in that land, when he was with Abram, at night he just pushed back the flap of his tent and looked out and say, Ms. Lot, isn't that a beautiful spot down there? In the morning he'd get up and he said, My, it looks so attractive down there. And the grass is always greener than the other pasture. And when the day came when he could make a decision and go, you know the direction he went. No man falls suddenly. It always takes place over a period of time. You begin to lift the flap of your tent, and you pitch your tent towards Sodom. And that's the beginning. Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the plain. And he heads in that direction. That's the biggest mistake he ever made in his life. Now, he didn't know this, verse 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. We'll see later what happened to Lot and Mrs. Lot and the family down in Sodom later on. Now, verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abram, After that Lot was separated from him, now, here is the third appearance of God to this man. Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. This is the land God's going to give him. Now, as God continues to appear to him and later on to the other patriarchs, God puts sideboards around that land. In other words, he put a border to it and told them exactly the land. He was very specific about it. And by the way, may I just interject this. That ought to get rid of that song, Beautiful Isle of Somewhere. <laughs> if there ever was a song that needed not to be sung at a funeral, that's the one, Beautiful Isle of Somewhere. Can you imagine Abraham now looking northward, eastward, southward, and westward and singing Beautiful Isle of Somewhere when he was standing right in the middle of it? May I say to you, friends, heaven is a real place, not a beautiful Isle of Somewhere. Very definite place. The Word of God is quite specific. And those of you that were with us through the book of Revelation know that actually God made it so specific he put the boundary right around it, and we can know something about it. God does not deal with that which is theoretical, but that which is actual and real. Now God says, And I'll make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. 
Now, you notice what God does for this man. He now labels the land, tells him he's in it. He also confirms again the fact that he's going to have a tremendous offspring, which he has had. Now he says in verse 17, Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I'll give it unto thee. And the very interesting thing is that this scroll, Dead Sea Scroll, they called it the Book of Lamech, and it wasn't that at all. And actually, it describes this particular section of Genesis. And here it says, Abraham was to walk through the land in the length and in the breadth thereof. And this scroll gives a first-person account by Abraham of the land, just what it was. It was a wonderful land in that day. Now, verse 18, "...then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord." And here he goes again. He's quite an altar builder. You could always tell where Abraham had been. He left a testimony. They've left a footprint on the moon. They've left a flag up there and a little motto, we've come in peace. But they didn't leave the Bible, the Word of God. Well, it wasn't done any good anyway, but it reveals the difference in the age and the thinking of the period in which we live today. The important thing to Abraham was an altar to the Lord, and that's exactly what he built. And Mamre means richness, and Hebron means communion. That's a marvelous place to dwell. I think that you can locate that tree where Abraham was, by the way, and the well that's there. I've been there. It's quite an interesting spot between Hebron and Mamre. And that is where Abram dwelt. And it's a good place to be in the place of richness and then a place of communion with God. And this seems to have been his home. That's where he's buried today. This is the place that he wanted to go. Now, that brings us to chapter 14 of Genesis. And here in chapter 14, we find the first war. And Abraham delivers Lot. And we find the first priest, Abraham blessed by Melchizedek. These are the two great truths that are here. And in one sense, this is one of the most remarkable chapters. doesn't seem to fit in with the story at all. You feel like it could be left out, that there's a continuity without it. But may I say again, it's one of the most important chapters that we have in the book of Genesis. And we have in this chapter a very remarkable account of two things, the first war and then this first priest, Melchizedek. Now, let's come to the first here because this is extremely important. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Shedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. That's a very good exercise, as you can see in pronunciation. But this is a very important chapter. Now we find here that, first of all, this is a historical document. The kings of the east defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we have here in the first 11 verses. And for quite a few years, the critical, radical scholars rejected this. They said that these men do not appear in history at all, that they are not in secular history, and that this was a rather ridiculous story. Did you know today that these men had been found on monuments, and they'd been found on tablets, and that they did exist? In fact, Amraphel is the 
Hammurabi of secular history. And note this, because it's very important to get this before us here. This is tremendously significant that we have here. Now we find that there was war, and this is the first war that's mentioned. So you see, mankind began early in making war. And now we find that these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shador Leomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Now, that was what brought the kings of the east, and they came against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is nothing in the world but a historical record, and I'm not intending to read this verse by verse here. And you probably noticed that we've pretty much read the first part of Genesis verse by verse and have dealt with it. That is something I wish we could do for the entire Bible, but there are times when we'll pass over sections, and we're doing that right here. Now, the kings of the east, they come, and they overcome the kings that have joined together around the Dead Sea, the lower part of it. And they're on their way to take back these as captives. Now, if you have a map, and it's nice to have a map in the back of your Bible you turn to, you'll find out they almost went by Abraham's tent in order to leave the Dead Sea go back up through the Fertile Crescent, and then go back to the land that they came from in the east. Now, we're going to follow that next time because we're going to see Abraham doing a very remarkable thing as he, with a surprise attack, rescues Lot. Now, if you found your place in the Bible at Genesis 14, we're putting in at verse 12 today. Now, we saw last time the first war. And I found myself very hesitant because I did not know how far to go into it. And I feel that we should not probably develop a section like that too much. But here is a very interesting sideline for somebody to follow through, and you will find it very absorbing and very interesting. This is a historical document that tells of a war, the first war that's recorded, I do not know whether it was the first war that ever took place. I don't think that's the intention of the writer. The purpose here is because Lot is involved, the nephew of Abraham. But we find that the kings of the east defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And frankly, they evidently had fought before because they had them in subjugation and they had reached the place where they had rebelled. Now, the thing that had happened was that Lot lived in Sodom, and Lot was taken captive, and Abraham goes out and defeats the kings of the east and delivers Lot. The question arises, how could he do it? Well, let's look at this. And as I suggested before, that when the kings of the east left the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, they moved north along the west bank of the Dead Sea. And frankly, it's not too far from Hebron and Mamre where Abraham was dwelling. You can stand where Abraham stood in that day, and you can see any movement that takes place down toward the Dead Sea. And so when word was brought to Abraham and it was brought to him, he immediately began to pursue the enemy as he moved north. Now, will you notice this? And they took Lot. Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Now, that's Genesis 14:12, And that's the reason this war is significant to the record here. It reveals what Abraham's going to do in connection with his nephew. Now, verse 13, there came one that had escaped, told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. Now, you see, Abram has a group of men that are with him. Actually, they had to stand together in that day because of the pursuit of an enemy or the approach of an enemy. And there was safety in numbers, or they either had to hang together or hang separately. Now, the thing that's startling here to us is this, 
and it reveals something of the extent of Abraham's possessions. Verse 14 of Genesis 14, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Dan's up in the north. Now, 318. That gives you some conception of the number of servants that Abraham had. In his own household, he could arm 318. Well, how many did he have that he couldn't arm? For instance, women and children, the old folk. But he could arm 318. Now, he's carrying on, may I say, quite a business in that area, raising cattle and sheep and that type of thing. Now, verse 15, he divided himself. Now, here's the way he did it. He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left bank of Damascus. Now, you see, he pursued them all the way north to Damascus. Now, that's quite a stretch. What Abraham apparently did here, he divided his servants, and one group would make an attack from the rear as they were pursuing them. The other group went around, and when the enemy turned to fight the first group, you could see what would happen. He'd come down upon them, and as a result, he was able to get a victory. At least he was able to scatter them so that they fled across the desert and left the people they had captured in the booty. Now, he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. You see, they were taking the women and the people as slaves. Now, Abraham has done a tremendous thing, of course, and he did it because of his nephew Lot. That is it very definitely, and that's the reason that all of this is mentioned here. And I would say for this reason and another reason we'll see when we get into the next chapter Abraham very definitely is not having a chapter put in here that's extraneous. It's along with the life of Abraham and very important. Now, it's very important for what follows. Notice, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shador Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now, someone else is going to come out and meet Abram. And it's a good thing that he did, because the king of Sodom is putting him in grave danger, at least temptation. Now, will you notice, verse 18, And even Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. And I have several questions here, and I'm sure that you do. To begin with, my point is, where in the world did this man Melchizedek come from? He just walks out on the page of Scripture with bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham and he walks off of the page of Scripture, and that's it. And I wonder where he came from, and I wonder where he's going, and I wonder what his business is. And I find out he's king of Salem, but he's also priest of the Most High God. Now I have another question. How did he find out about the Most High God? Well, he found out somewhere El Elyon, the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth. In other words, the living God, the God of Genesis 1, the God of Noah, the God of Enoch, this is the one. Not a local deity. And Lupole, in his book on Genesis, says this is strictly a monotheistic conception. And Dr. Zwema, in his Origin of Religion, says this reveals there was monotheism before polytheism. In other words, all man had a knowledge of the living and true God. And Paul said, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And what did they do? They became vain, and down they went, and began to worship the creature more than the Creator. But here is a man who is high priest, and he's high priest for the world of that day. 
Now, he had a knowledge of the living and true God. He was a priest of the living and true God. And he comes out and he brings bread and wine to Abram, and those are the elements of the Lord's Supper. And I wonder what he had in mind. How much did Melchizedek know? Well, Melchizedek is mentioned three times in Scripture. We have him mentioned in the 110th Psalm. That's prophetic. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we get to Hebrews, and he's mentioned several times in Hebrews, and when we were in our two-and-a-half-year program, I dwelt on Melchizedek a great deal, which means we'll dwell on him more when we get to Hebrews again. But let me just say this, that now I know why that nothing is said about his origin. Nothing is said about his papa and his mama. And that's strange, because the book of Genesis is the book of families. It tells about the beginnings of these families. And every time you have a man mentioned that's important here in the line, as this man Melchizedek is, his papa and mama is mentioned. He's the son of so-and-so, or these are the generations of so-and-so. And we don't have the generations of Melchizedek. Why don't we? Well, the writer to the Hebrews makes that very clear. The reason is that he had no father or mother, beginning or ending of days, because later on, the priesthood of Christ in its inception is after the order of Melchizedek. But after the order of service, it follows the order of Aaron in what our Lord did in the service, like the sacrifice of himself and entering the Holy of Holies, which is heaven today. But in his person, our Lord had no beginning or end of days. You see, as king, he's son of Abraham. He's son of David. That's important. Matthew tells us that. But as the great high priest, and that is something important to see in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But he has no beginning or ending of days as far as creation is concerned. He is the eternal God who came out of heaven's glory, and the Word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory, John says. So what you have here is a marvelous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he brings forth bread and wine. And I know now why he does it, because our Lord says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. And Melchizedek is remembering the death of Christ here. And on that basis, he blesses Abraham. Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, El Elohim, the Creator. And this man is the high priest in that day of the world. And the Lord Jesus is the great high priest for the world today. And the Lord Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron here. But Aaron was just for Israel and for just a tabernacle, and it gives us a marvelous picture. But in his person, he is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that is important to see. And we are told here, verse 20, "...and blessed be the Most High God, which delivered thine enemies into thy hands, and he gave him tithes of all." And Abraham paid tithes to him here at the very beginning. And why did he know about paying tithes? All right, we move on. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. This is the temptation. According to the code of Hammurabi of that day, this man Abram had a perfect right to the booty and even the persons. But the king of Sodom is clever. He says, Give us the persons. You take the booty. It's yours. And that was a temptation to Abraham. And forever after, the king of Sodom, when anybody would say, My, that man Abraham is certainly a wealthy man. God has blessed him. And I think that the king of Sodom would say, Bless him your foot. God didn't bless him. I gave it to him. I'm the one who made him rich. Abraham knew that. And listen to Abraham now. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. You see, he's still under the influence and the blessing of Melchizedek. And it's a good thing he met Melchizedek. You know, God always prepares us for any temptation that comes to us. 
And he says he'll never let any come to us that we're not able to bear. And so he prepared Abram for this. Listen to Abram now. That I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, a shoestring, and that I'll not take anything that's thine, lest thou should say I've made Abram rich. You see, Abram, when he started out, he made a covenant with God. He said, Oh God, I'm not entering this war in order to get booty. I'm not after possessions. I want to restore and recover my nephew Lot and permit me to do that. And God permitted him. And now Abram tells the king of Sodom, this is a witness to the king. He said, I worship the living and true God, and I've taken an oath. I wouldn't take anything, and you can't make me rich. I won't even let you give me a shoestring or a piece of thread, because even if you did that, you'd run around and say you made me rich, but you didn't. If I get rich, God will have to do it, of course. Now, will you notice verse 24? Save only that which the young man have eaten, and the portion of man which went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now, these others, they have a right to it. They can have it, but I'm not taking anything. The young men that were with me, what they ate, they're not to restore that to you, because actually that is their pay. Their pay for serving you and for delivering you. But for me, you won't give me a thing. Now, we come to chapter 15, and chapter 15 just joins right on here. God reveals himself to Abraham more completely and reaffirms his promise. And we come to one of the high points of the Bible here in chapter 15, and another one will be in chapter 17. Listen to this, and we'll get into it today just a little ways. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. This now is the fourth time that God has appeared to Abram. This is the fourth time, and now God is developing him, you see, bringing him farther along. And God does well to appear to him now. Because, you see, Abram has taken a tremendous step of faith when he went out and rescued Lot, when he turned down the booty that the king of Sodom offered him. Now God says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And, friends, that's lovely. That's wonderful. He says, first of all, I'm your shield. I do not know this, but let me suggest it to you. I think during the battle that Abraham got in real danger, and he wondered whether he'd come out of it alive. And God just reminds him, I'm your shield, Abraham. I'm your shield, and I'm thy exceeding great reward. You did well to turn down the booty. I'm your reward. I intend to reward you. Oh, when a man today is willing just to believe God and look to him, what God can do with him. And Abram said, now wait just a minute. Now, if you think Abraham is one of these pious boys who gets his halo shined every morning, you're wrong. Abraham is very practical, and he's going to get right down to the nitty-gritty now. And I think God likes us to do that, friends. I wish we could get rid of this false piosity and hypocritical attitude that so many of the fundamentalists assume today, and they don't seem real to me. Some of them, they are just way out yonder, that's all. Now, will you notice this man Abraham, and this is quite wonderful. Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? What he's saying to God is this. He's saying, I don't want more riches. I don't need that. The thing that's on my heart is, I'm childless, and I want a son. You have promised to make me a father of nations, and my offspring would be as numberless as the sand on the seashore, and I don't even have a child or a chick around anywhere. And according to the law of that day, the code of Hammurabi, Eliezer, his steward, his head servant, he had an offspring, and in time he would inherit if Abraham didn't have one. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. This boy is born in my house. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, And you know God's practical when a man will be practical with him. This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. 
I'm going to give you a son, Abraham. I'm going to give you a son. Now God took him by the hand, brought him forth, and it was night. You say, how do you know it's night? Well, let me read. Verse 5 of Genesis 15. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. This is remarkable, friends. God said to him, First, your offspring will be as numberless as the sand on the seashore. And now he says, as numberless as the stars in heaven, and it had to be night for Abraham to see the stars. Now, this man Abraham actually has two seed. He has a physical seed, and that's the nation Israel. He has a spiritual seed, and that's the church. How do they become a spiritual seed? By faith. Paul told the Galatians, the sons of Abraham. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. You're not in a natural line. I had the privilege of speaking to a group of very fine young Jewish men many years ago, young men in Nashville, Tennessee, and had known some of them before I was saved, had been very close friends of them, and they invited me to speak. And I spoke to them on the glories of the Mosaic law and that the fulfillment of it was in Christ. But I began by telling them I was glad to speak to them because I said, I know you are sons of Abraham, but I'm a son of Abraham also. And they looked in amazement one to another. And I told them how I was a son of Abraham. There are these two seeds that we have before us. And this is a very wonderful thing. And now notice what it says here, verse 6, He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, next time, I'm going to develop this. This is one of the greatest statements in the Scripture. Abraham just believed God, that's all. And that was counted to him for righteousness. Now, Abraham does something that is quite interesting. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? In other words, Abraham's a very practical man again. He believes in dealing with reality. And I think we need to do it today. We need reality today in our lives, in our Christian life. And friend, if reality is not in your life, there's nothing there. Many people just play church today. Now, will you notice what Abraham says? Abraham says, how shall I know it? And you know what God's going to tell him? Abraham, I'm glad you asked me because I'm going to meet you down at the courthouse and I'll go before a notary public and I will make real this contract that I'm making with you and you are going to have a son. And I will make a contract with you and so you meet me down there, and I'll sign on the dotted line. Now, there's somebody going to say to me, or write me, and say, Look here, Dr. McGee, I've been following you along in Genesis, and so far you've been sticking to the text, but you surely have departed here, because it says nothing about God meeting him down at a courthouse and nothing about going through a notary public. Well, friends, may I say to you, According to the law of that day, that's exactly what God said to Abram, and we're going to see that next time. Now, we come today to verse 6, and I'd like to read it here in the 15th chapter. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, here is one of the great chapters of the Bible, and this is one of the great verses of the Bible. You'll recall that God appeared to Abraham after his victory over the kings of the east, and God had protected him. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And this man, Abram, is a little disturbed. He asked about the fact that he doesn't have a child, one born in his house, is the one that will inherit and be in the line. And God took him by the hand. It was night and led him out and said, Look yonder toward the stars. If you can number them, well, you could number your offspring. He couldn't number the stars. 
He could see approximately about 4,000, but there probably were over 50,000 in that area where he was looking. He couldn't number them. He couldn't number his offspring. You couldn't today. Now, Abraham believed God. Actually, what it means is Abraham said, Amen to God. God says, I'll do this for you. And Abraham said to God, I believe you. Amen. I believe it. And that was counted to him for righteousness. Now, this is so important that we need to make a check on this. Paul used it. For instance, you have him in the fourth chapter of Romans. Paul quotes this verse. And let me read that, beginning with verse 1 of the fourth chapter of Romans. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Or let me change that reading. Abraham has found as pertaining to the flesh. I think that that brings out the meaning better. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it, that is, his faith, was counted to him for righteousness, for that's what it was not, but that's what God counted it. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now, if you can work for your salvation, then God owes it to you. But, my friend, God never saves by any other means except grace. He's never had any other method of saving. And if you ever get saved, it'll be because you believe God. You accept Christ as your Savior. You believe that God has provided this salvation for you. And he makes it very clear here in verse 5, "...but to him that worketh not, no works at all, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly." What kind of folk? Ungodly folk. His faith is counted for righteousness. It's counted for what it's not, and that's for righteousness. Now, Abraham just believed God. He just accepted what God said, and he believed God. That's the way you get saved, is to believe that God has done something for you, that Christ died for you, and rose again, and God will declare you righteous by simply accepting Christ. Now, in the third chapter of Galatians, you have that same great truth, by the way. And we're told here in verse 8 of Galatians 3, "...in the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed." And then we're told back in verse 6, "...even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted..." him for righteousness. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Faith that Abraham had made him faithful to God. But he's not saved by being faithful. He's saved by believing God. That's all important to see. Now, Abraham was a very practical man. He was not filled with a phony piosity, as we see a lot of that today. He's very practical. He now wants to know something, and he'd like to have something in writing. Will you listen to verse 7? He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Here God again says, I'm giving you this land to inherit it. And Abraham doesn't even have a deed. He has nothing in writing. And as I said last time, God told him to go down to the courthouse and I'll meet you down there, and we'll sign a contract. And you say to me, well, I've read that in my Bible, and it's certainly not there. Oh, it is in your Bible. You just have to read it right, though. Verse 8, And he said, here's Abraham now, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You've told me that. How shall I know it? I'd like to have it in writing. Now, here's what God said do. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece, one against another, but the birds divided he not. 
Now the thing that God said for him to do is that you get a sacrifice, you get a heifer, she-goat, a ram, and you divide them down the middle. That is, split them right down the middle, put one half on one side, one half on the other. Turtle doves you don't divide. You put one turtle dove over here, one over there. Now, when men made a contract in that day, that's the way they made it. They would fix a sacrifice like this, and the two men who were making a contract, if one man agreed to buy sheep from the other one, the party of the first part joins hands with the party of the second part, and then they state their contract. One says, this I agree to do. The other says, then I'll pay you so much. They join hands and walk through that. Now, that in that day corresponded to going down to the courthouse and signing before a notary. That's exactly what took place. Now, you'll notice that Abraham got everything ready according to what God wanted him to do. Notice verse 11. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. This is sure a very human scene. If you'd been there, you would have probably have seen all this display of the sacrifices, and you had known the custom of the day. I probably ought to turn and read from Jeremiah 34, 18, for here you have a reference to this custom that was prevalent in that land, not just among these people, but all other peoples in that day. And here's a reference to it. I'm reading Jeremiah 34, 18. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. You see, this was the method in that day of taking the sacrifice and dividing it, and the men then make the contract. Now, Abraham gets everything ready, and while he's waiting for the Lord, why, the fowls of the air come down, the buzzards, the crows, and all other carrion. And Abraham's there shooing them away. They were ready to swoop down. And you would say, well, Brother Abraham, apparently the one you're making a contract with hasn't shown up. And he said, no, hasn't. He says, I guess he's late. No, Abraham says, I don't think he's late. He just told me to get things ready and that he'd be here and make the contract. Now, notice what happened. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, this is the thing that took place. Abraham is paralyzed in sleep and put aside. Now, that seems very strange that God would paralyze him in sleep when he's supposed to be making a contract. This is an unusual contract. God is going to go through because God's promising something, and Abraham's not going to go through because Abraham's not promising to do a thing. He just believed God. That's all. My friend, that's exactly what took place 1,900 years ago. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and the Son agreed to come to the earth and die for the sins of the world, your sin and mine, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And I wasn't even there. Nineteen hundred years, I wasn't even there to make a contract. But God the Father and God the Son did, and he went to the cross, and he died for my sins. And I was paralyzed by sin. I couldn't promise anything. You couldn't either. Abraham's not going to promise anything. Suppose that God had said to Abraham, Abraham, if you'll just promise to say your prayers every night, I'm going to do this for you. And suppose Abraham forgets to do this and doesn't pray one night. Well, the contract is shot. It's broken. And therefore, God doesn't need to make his part good. God said that he'd do it. And he's asking man to do just one thing. Say amen to God. You believe it. Believe what God has done. Friends, that's salvation. And it's to believe God. Years ago, a dear little Scotch mother, her son had gone away to Glasgow to college, and he came back rather an unbeliever. And she was talking with the boy, 
and telling about how wonderful God was and that she was sure of her salvation. Well, he had become skeptical, and he was a little provoked, and finally said, how do you know you're saved? Why, he said, your little soul doesn't amount to anything. And he began to compare her to the vastness of the universe and said, God could forget all about you, and you can't be sure. And she never said anything. She just kept serving the boys' breakfast. And finally, when she'd finished, she sat down with him, and she said, you know, son, I've been thinking about it. Maybe you're right. Maybe my little soul doesn't amount to much. Maybe the vastness of God's universe would mean he wouldn't miss me at all. But says, you know, says if he doesn't save me, he's going to lose more than I'm going to lose. And he says, what do you mean? Well, just as you said, my soul doesn't amount to anything. I wouldn't lose much. But he's going to lose his reputation. (laughs) He promised to do it. He agreed to do it, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, God's the one went through. God made the contract. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, shall serve them, they shall afflict them four hundred years. In the Scripture, it's predicted these people would be put out of the land three times. This is the first one. It's also predicted they'd return back to the land. They did from this one. Later on, it was the Babylonian captivity. They were carried into captivity. They returned. At 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed, and again they were scattered. They have never returned from that, but it's predicted they will come back someday. Now, God says, "...also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance." And they did. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Abraham would not live to see it, of course. Verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God says, I can't put you in this land now, because I love Amorites too, and I want to give them a chance to turn to me. And God gave them 400 years. That's a long time, is it not, to see if they wouldn't turn to him. And the only one that turned to him in that land was that Canaanite, you remember, Rahab the harlot. She turned to God. She believed him. That's all God asked you to do is to believe him. But he gave the Amorites all this opportunity. It came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Both of those speak of Christ. The furnace speaks, of course, of judgment. The lamp speaks of him as the light of the world. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land unto the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And God now marks out the land. By the way, what did Abraham promise to do? Nothing. He believed God. God will save you. Saves you by grace, by believing what he's done for you. Now, we come to chapter 16, and I must confess that you almost wish chapter 16 wasn't in the Bible, that God had left it out. Because after Abraham rose to the heights here, well, you would say, well, believe me, he's certainly treading on high places now, but he's not perfect. (laughs) We see the lapse of this man's faith here relative to Sarah and Hagar, the Egyptian maid. Now, let me read chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children. She had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. You see, he got two things down in the land of Egypt that really caused him trouble. Wealth was one thing, and this little Egyptian maid he got down there. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Now, the thing that this woman has suggested was the common practice of that day. When a wife couldn't bear a child, there was the concubine. And that was common practice of that day. But don't say God approved this. God did not approve of this at all. This was Sarah's idea. And frankly... It was not contrary to the custom of the day. And Abram listened to her. It looks like he's surrendering his position as head of the home here. 
and he followed her suggestion. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, this little Egyptian maid becomes a concubine, and this is not according to God's will. God's not going to accept the offspring at all. He didn't. He wouldn't. Why? Because it was wrong. Don't say God approved this. All that you can say is that this is in the record because this is a historical fact that took place. Now we read, "...he went in unto Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes." You can see, she said, I've mothered a child of Abraham, and Sarah couldn't do it. She looked down on Sarah, you see. And now notice verse 5, "...and Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong is upon me." Now look, don't go by that. Don't say that God approved of this. He didn't. God says this is wrong. Now Sarah sees that she's done wrong. My wrong be upon me. She's wrong, my friend. And I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. God doesn't approve of it. God will not accept this. And it's going to be a real heartbreak to old Abraham. But you see, they're not really trusting God as they should. After all, Abraham at this time is 90 years old. Sarah's 80. I think they'd come to the conclusion that they were not going to have a child. I'm of the opinion that probably Sarah could rationalize and say, well, I think maybe this is the way God wants us to do it, for this is the custom of the day. And it was the custom of that day. But it's contrary to God's way of doing things. You know, we get the wrong impression if we think just because it's in the Bible, God approves of it. And the only thing that's inspired is that it's an accurate record. But there are many things God does not approve of that are recorded in his word. This happens to be one of them. But we'll have to wait till next time to pick up our story. Now, as we come back to this 16th chapter, we see here another one of the tests of Abraham in which he failed. You have here the unbelief of both Sarah and Abraham and the birth of Ishmael. This is certainly a letdown after the wonder of the last chapter. It really is something that is quite disturbing. And will you note now, as we come to chapter 16, Sarah suggested to Abram, Hagar, the maid, in view of the fact she could not have a child, and at least had not had one. And that, may I say, would be according to the law of that day. The moral implications that you and I read into this are not quite here in the historical record. That does not mean that God does not approve of it, because he doesn't. He'll make that quite evident. But Abraham and Sarah were brought up in Ur of the Chaldees, in which this was a common practice. And the moral angle is not the thing that for them was so terrible. The thing that was terrible, they just didn't believe God. And that is the thing that's the opposite today. The sin that they committed, and it was a sin, God treated it as such by Abram taking Sarah's maid, Hagar, that was a sin. But today, we reverse that. We would say, yes, it's a sin, but the unbelief, we don't pay too much attention to that. And yet, that was the real sin here. That is, lots blacker than the other. Now, when this boy Ishmael was born, this maid looked down on Sarah. Sarah realized she had done wrong, and we read in verse 6, But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Now, she took off. She ran away. And it would probably have meant death to her, and certainly to the child. And so the angel of the Lord, and again, I'm inclined to believe the angel of the Lord here is none other 
than the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's the picture of him. He's always out looking for the lost. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. She had gotten a pretty good ways from home here. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now you find when you get to the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians that Paul uses this as an allegory, as he tells us. That's what it is. And he speaks of Hagar and her offspring as being Mount Sinai, where the law was given and the legality of it and the bondage of it. And he speaks of Sarah, the one that is free. The thing is that the one that belonged to Abraham actually was Sarah. That was his wife. And a great many today want to take on something different. They want to get under the law. Well, my friend, we've been joined to Christ. The church has been espoused to Christ, Paul says, as a chaste virgin, and will someday be the bride of Christ. Now, may I say to you, you don't want to take on the law. That's another one that you and I just don't need. That's like Hagar. That's the point that Paul's making over in Galatians here. Now, this is going to be a great sorrow, not only to Sarah, it's already that to her, but it's going to be a greater sorrow even to Abraham later on. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, shall bear a son, shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. He'll be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Have you looked at this verse in light of about 4,000 years of history out there in the Middle East and what's going on out there today? He's a wild man. That's been the story of those Bedouin tribes of the desert down through the centuries. And it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave. These are offspring of Ishmael. And they'll tell you out there that they are sons of Ishmael. They are sons of Abraham, but also they are sons of Ishmael, and they go to Abraham through Ishmael. Now, verse 13, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me, for she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Now, how gracious God is to her. It's not her sin. So God very graciously deals with her. And I believe firmly that the angel of the Lord here is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, gone out to seek the lost again. He's that kind of a shepherd. And he brings to her this good word. And... She called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. Now, that is something new to her. She did not realize that. You see, they did have a very primitive idea and conception of God. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? And she's overwhelmed by the fact that she's seen of God. Now, that doesn't seem to be very impressive to us today because we have a higher view of God than that. But wait just a minute. We probably come just as far short of really knowing about God as she does. You see, it's difficult for a little finite man to conceive of the infinite God. And all of us come short of 
understanding and of knowing him. I think that's a theme that will engage us throughout the endless ages of eternity is just coming to know God. And that's worthy of any man's study. That is something that will dignify man's position throughout eternity is to come to know God. Now, verse 15, And Hagar bare Abram a son. Remember, Ishmael was Abram's son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Now, he was eighty-six years old. 